0: You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me today. On Yom Kippur, we read the book of Yonah during the Mincha service, and we know what happens in that story. Yonah goes to Nineveh with a prophecy, warning them that if they don't do tshuva, if they don't repent, Bo'od Arbeim Yom, Nineveh Nehefechet. In another 40 days, Ninveh is going under. God's going to punish them severely. And of course, that's an appropriate theme to be fitting for Yom Kippur because it's a book about repentance and the people of Ninveh do repent at the end of the day. But what happens at the beginning of that story? Well, we saw that even before Yonah arrived in Ninveh to prophesize, he underwent an experience that carries for us a message for today and for Yom Kippur as well. What happened at the beginning of the story? we see that Yonah boards a boat and he's trying to flee the land of Israel. Why? Because he doesn't want the divine presence to rest upon him because as long as he's out of the land of Israel, he can't carry God's message and he doesn't want to carry the message that God is giving him because Yonah knew that the Gentiles of Nineveh would heed his call to repentance. He knew it. And he knew the Jewish people at that time were not listening to the prophets. And so if he went to Nineveh, and the Gentiles in invade did tshuva, they repented, that would make the Jews look bad. It would bring God's wrath upon them because the Jews at that time were not listening to the prophets. You see, Yonah the prophet was prophesizing in the days of the 10 tribes whose capital was in the Shamron, after splitting off the Davidic dynasty. And they went off the derech pretty fast. And by the time Yonah came around, the kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes were in the depths of tuma, And Yonah, was a student of Elisha, the prophet. And by the way, it was Yonah who anointed Yehu ben Nimshi to wipe out the house of Ahab. In the book of Kings, it says that Elisha sent one of his students, one of the benenivim, to anoint Yehu ben Nimshi. doesn't give the name, but the sages tell us that was Yonah. So Yonah was around during that time. And eventually it was the country of Assyria, which Ninveh is the capital of that country. Talking about Assyria. They're the ones who are going to expel the 10 tribes. They're going to throw them into the gullas and they're never going to come back. And so Yonah doesn't want to do this. This is not a mission he wants to carry out. And therefore he chose to flee from his obligation to warn the people in Nineveh because he didn't want them showing up to Jews. But despite these wonderful intentions, Yonah was wrong. Why? Because the role of the prophet is to speak the word of God no matter what. No excuses. Yeah, speaking the truth can be quite difficult. And the great leaders of our times, the Jebutinsky's, the I.S. Stern's, Rabbi Kahana, they were saying these painful truths that nobody wanted to hear. And they were very unpopular when they said it. It's only much later on where people said, wow, they were right. But at the time they said it, forget about it. In Rabbi Kahana's final speech he gave before being shot on November 5th, 1990, it was right after he gave a speech in a New York hotel room. That night, he wanted to start a movement called Emergency Aliyah, right? He said the Jews got to get out of the exile before it's too late. And he said he knows that it's not gonna be a popular message. And this is what he said. I'm quoting it. He says like this, you think it's pleasant to speak painful truths that cause pain to those who refuse to listen and who then react with pain and hate against the one who speaks? You think it is easy to be the messenger that brings forth the reaction Kill the messenger? And so, yes, speaking the truth is sometimes, you know, a huge test. And even the prophet Yonah didn't want to do it with all his good intentions. And again, getting back to Yonah, the sages tell us that Yonah was very close to being a prophet who was chayav mitah. He was liable to receive a death penalty. Why? Because the sages tell us that there are several types of prophets who were obligated to receive the death penalty, the chayav mitah. And one of these types of prophets Huzchev mita, is one who, the Torah says, koveshit he suppresses his prophecy. That is, he received the prophetic vision and is commanded to reveal it, but he refuses to do so. And so Yonah came dangerously close to falling into this category by fleeing the land of Israel and suppressing his prophecy. Now, anybody who knows the Torah truth and doesn't say it, he's also in a way suppressing his prophecy. Because in Hebrew, the word prophet is Navi, from the word Niv fatayim, which means to speak. And that's why God told Moses, who did not want to speak to Paro, because he wasn't a good speaker, Hashem told him, don't worry, Aaron will be Nevecha. He'll be your speaker. But the word speaker is Navi, which also means prophet, because the role of the prophet is to speak. You got to say it. And so that goes for today too. If a Jewish leader, a rabbi, a scholar, knows the Torah truth, but he doesn't say it, for any kind of reason. His institution will get cut off. He'll be banned. He'll lose donors. Well, he is also falling into the category of Kovesh of He's suppressing the Torah truth so it doesn't get out there. And so all this is a vital lesson on Yom Kippur for all the Bnei Torah, the Bnei Yeshiva and the rabbis who sit quietly, afraid to attack the Hellenist left. Don't talk about the Arab cancer in our midst and what the Torah says to do about it out of fear they don't state the simple halacha, and the solution to the basic and burning Yishmaelite problem, whose status is so obvious, according to Torah, that no honest rabbi could differ with it. But the problem is that in public, everybody's quiet. All these people are, in a sense, prophets who withhold their prophecy, because they know the divine truth, but they refrain from saying it for all kinds of different reasons. Now, one rabbi who doesn't withhold the divine truth there's a rabbi named Yigal Levenstein. Rabbi Yigal Levenstein lives in L.E. He's a strong Zionist rabbi. And he's very outspoken about this whole gender fluidity thing and men marrying men and LGBTQ and all that. He's not afraid to express what the Torah says about all that, that it's forbidden and it's an abomination. So last week, he was giving a lecture in Tel Aviv and somehow the Hellenist left got word of it. And you could and you could see this on YouTube. It went viral, where these left wingers swarmed him in the streets. Israeli police officers had to rescue the man as he was being chased. You see, dozens of these leftists trying to physically attack Rabbi Yigal Levitstein. They got sticks in their hands, and if the police hadn't shielded the rabbi with their bodies, it would have ended badly. This all happened a couple of days ago. That's the hate of the left towards the religious Jews towards a Jew who says the truth. And this used to happen to Rabbi Kahana all the time. I mean, this is nothing new. It's just that it's happening now to more mainstream rabbis. Plus, today you can witness it all on YouTube or in the cozy confines of your living room, sitting on your couch. But when Rabbi Kahana was around, I witnessed it one time at the B'nai Umar building, another time in Givatayim. And the rabbi writes about it himself in the book, Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews which by the way is a great title and a great book. And if you're interested in Rabbi Kahana books, you can email me at lennygoldberg 40 at gmail.com, Goldberg 40 the number 40, at gmail.com if you want to order some Kahana books. In any case, I want to read a little bit of what he writes of how he was attacked by the leftists when they shipped in the kibbutznikim to attack Rabbi Kahana at his rallies. He talks about at one of his rallies when the kibbutznikim from a Shomeret and a Noah Ha'oved, these youth groups, they would bust in to attack him at his rally. It says, like this I've seen them, their faces twisted in unbelievable ugliness, mouths cursing, arms making obscene gestures, even as they throw eggs and rocks at other Jews who back Kahana. I have seen murder in the eyes of the leftists, the mixed multitude who have infiltrated the Jewishness of the Jewish people and who pollute us with their sick self hate. And hatred of other Jews. I have heard a call to murder Jews, and that a Jewish leader or intellectual or newspaper or liberal humanitarian cried out. I have seen incitement to the murder of Jews, open and hysterical mobilization to shed Jewish blood. I have seen Jews walk over to me, and they always say to me with the gravest of concern, Watch yourself, be careful. So the rabbi is saying here that at a lot of his rallies, even the quiet ones, People would come up to him after the rally and they'd say, listen, you got to be careful, watch yourself. Why did people come up to him all the time at a concern and say, be careful, watch yourself? Because they knew what this government was all about. These are the people who murdered Jews Al Talena, the murder of Dahan, because the Israelis knew what their government is capable of doing. And I've seen it myself where Jews came up to him and said, you got to stop, you got to stop. You got to be careful. You got to even stop what you're doing. And the rabbi would say, just let me try. You know, just reminiscing a little bit, I remember the first time I saw Rabbi Kahana in Miami University, I was visiting a friend who was learning law there and he came in with these big uh, bodyguards, big, two big guys next to him on each side and the Hill rabbi there who did not like Rabbi Kahana at all. Of course, the Hill campus rabbi, they didn't sponsor Rabbi Kahana. They were against him speaking. Somebody else sponsored him. And so the Hillel rabbi got up right before he spoke and he said, I'm not comfortable looking at these two big gorillas next to you. I'm not comfortable with that. This is a peaceful campus, nonviolent. I'm not comfortable. He kept saying that I'm not comfortable. So Rabbi Kahane said to the Hillel Rabbi, he said like this. First of all, this threats on my life, okay? So I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. Anyway, that cracked us up right off the bat. But let me continue what the rabbi writes here in Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews. He continues speaking about the left. They hate the Sabbath and they hate the laws of Judaism and they hate the yeshivas and they hate the rabbis and they hate being Jewish and they hate God and they hate Zionism and a Jewish state and the need to be different. And they hate Kahana for representing all of this. And they hate the bitter reality of hundreds of thousands supporting and marching for and believing in all the things that they hate. And so they are prepared to use any and all means to destroy the Jews of Jewishness. Anyway, the rabbi goes on explaining his experiences with the left, what happened in the Tel Aviv suburb of Givatayim, where he was almost lynched if the border police didn't step in. And I'll stop reading, but I do think I have a couple more of these copies left of Uncomfortable Questions for Comfortable Jews. And this book was really the rabbi's first book regarding the left, the Jewish left, and the danger they pose. He had already written, you know, They Must Go, which was about the Arab issue, of course, and never again in story of the JDL and Kiruv books like why be Jewish but this later book exposed the israeli left and we see it in full force today okay so that's the situation i mean nothing's changed right it's just that then rabbi kahana was on the tip of the spear now the entire settler community is on that tip of the spear where the hate is directed against not just the settlers the orthodox jews that's really what this judicial reform debate all about, right? It's a war against Jewishness. But when the rabbi was going through it, like it was all on him. The rest of the nationalist camp and the right, the leadership anyway, they weren't backing him. They were happy with him being the extremist, receiving the brunt of the hate and of the attacks. So while Rabbi Kahana might have had mass support, you know, from the people, from the Amcha, the rest of the right wing, the settled community, forget about it. They ostracized him too. They wanted nothing to do with him. They figured he's the extremist and we'll be the moderates. That way we won't be hated and we won't be marginalized. But today we see it's clear what the rabbi is saying here. It was always an attack, not against Kahana, but against Judaism. And now simply, they're not ashamed to say it. Moving on to something else. This past week, I participated in a very important meeting. It was a meeting to muster up support for Amiram Ben Uliel. Amiram is a young man who spent a lot of his time on the hilltops of Migron in Binyamin. Him and his wife actually did the Shidduch for my daughter with uh, my son in law, Yakir Ashbel. And he was accused of burning a house down in the Arab village of Duma, which isn't far from here it's between Tapuach and Kochava Shachar. Members of the Dawasha family were burnt to death in that fire. And it's a well known case. And for over an hour, the lawyer of Chonain, who's defending him, explained the entire case, all the trials, all the appeals, the rulings of the various judges. And what makes the case very unique is that we have a Jew here who confessed under torture. It's not the first time the Shinbet tortured Jews, but it's the only time, and this lawyer proved it, that the only thing that the Shinbet has to go by is that confession of the torture. There is nothing else tying Amiran bin Uliel to that crime. Absolutely nothing. No forensic evidence, no witnesses. Many times under torture, somebody will give additional details and facts and through that they connect him to the crime. They spread a net over what he said and find other types of evidence that can tie him to the crime. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Just a confession under severe torture. And something else is unique about it. He's been sitting in solitary confinement ever since it happened over six years ago. Solitary confinement. The worst Arab terrorists don't get this treatment. The murderers of the Fogel family don't get this treatment. And so Ami Israel's pretty pissed off about it. And a lot of people showed up there. And thank God, a lot of money was raised to bring some public awareness to this situation and to provide financial assistance to his wife and young child. And for the first time, he was let out of his cell temporarily, and he was allowed to be in the Agaf Torani, in the Jewish section of the jail, to pray with the other prisoners on Rosh Hashanah, at least that. But that wouldn't have happened either without some kind of campaign to publicize his plight and to show just how low the leftists can go. They noticed his GoFundMe page and all the money that was raised. And amongst the donators were rabbis, not extreme rabbis, just mainstream rabbis, rabbis of settlements, consensus kind of rabbis. And they donated to him and it's listed on the GoFundMe page. So the Israeli newspapers publicized those names to try to shame these rabbis. And now they're going to open a GoFundMe page for the Arab family whose house was burned. Now, I'm not going to even talk about all the evidence that they could have brought in court which would have exonerated him from these charges. They obviously wanted a Korban. they wanted a victim. They wanna show that just like there's Arab terrorists, there's Jewish terrorists too, you see? You see Joe Biden? We're locking up those Jewish extremists too. We're even handed. And after the lawyer of Hanenu spoke, the next speaker was Jonathan Pollard. Yet Jonathan Pollard, who could have been a consensus hero, could have been in the mainstream, could have been loved by everybody, Even the Israeli media would have embraced him. But Jonathan Pollard, he's not the kind of guy who cashes in his chips to become some kind of, you know, member of Knesset, like Sharansky or something like that. No, no. Pollard is doing everything he can to come to the aid of Amiran Ben Uliel and for other persecuted Jews. He's been very outspoken. And believe me, he knows how to write. He knows how to talk. He's very eloquent, very articulate. He brings a perspective that nobody else can bring because he draws from his own personal experiences in jail and from his experiences as someone who worked in Navy intelligence and he knows exactly what torture is meant to do and how they want Amiram to break. And he brings that entire perspective down when he speaks and he opened up his words with the following. He said like this, that when I finally came to Israel, I suddenly saw that the Israel that I sacrificed for and that I went to jail for doesn't exist. It's not the country he expected. Anyway, after he spoke, I went up to him and I mentioned an interview he gave for Yidiot HaKronot, the Israeli newspaper, that was particularly enlightening. And he said, ah, that article a couple months ago, he said that after that article in Yidiot Ahronot, the Israeli newspaper, after it was published, eight Shin Bet agents came to his house and they said to him, we hope there won't be any more surprises like this going forward. And he said something like, no, you're not going to be surprised. That is, he's just going to keep on doing what he's doing. And that's to cry out for these persecuted righteous Jews who the Shin Bet and the Israeli authorities are putting the screws to. I want to read a piece that Rabbi Kahana wrote a long time ago, but very relevant to what I just spoke about, when the Shin Bet was harassing him. And he had just come to Israel. He was pretty new. He wasn't a Chaveh Knesset yet. He didn't have a seat. He wasn't that known, but he was doing things. He wasn't really anything big in Israel yet, but the Israeli authorities, they saw the potential and they didn't like it. So listen to some of this article that Rabbi Ghana wrote about the harassments that he endured from the Shinbet. It's called, My Friend Brenner. Now the rabbi's tone here is very sarcastic. He's taking a serious subject and he's making it funny, but as you'll see, it's not that funny. And I'll read some of the article. I have a friend in Israel and his name is Brenner. To be frank, I am not absolutely sure that that's his name, but it's the one he used when he first invited me to visit him in his office in the Defense Ministry building in Tel Aviv back in 1972. He was a gracious host, asking me if I cared for a drink. And even when he got down to the business of telling me that he was an official of the Shin Bet, Israel's secret service, he was quite a gentleman It was immediately after the Munich massacre when 11 Israelis were murdered and Mr. Brenner warned me not to try to take action against the Arab terrorists. I listened politely and went my way. I tried. Mr. Brenner then called my brother some months later and explained to him that perhaps he could persuade me. He also added that he usually did not warn people more than once. I listened to the message as it was relayed to me and I went to bed. I slept soundly. When I returned in February from Brussels, where I upset the Israeli government, I received a call from my old friend Brenner again. He asked me if I might have the time to meet him. I said I certainly would. And we set April 7th as the date. A young friendly chap picked me up in a car and we drove together to the Dizengoff Street Police Station in Tel Aviv, where Mr. Brenner was sitting in a quiet room, uncluttered by such things as signs, names, or papers. He again warned me against doing anything which might be construed to be against the law and how that covers a multitude of things in Israel. And he said, this is the third time that I warn you and we usually warn only once. Now, of course, I had the choice of two thoughts. One, if Brenner once said we only warn once and then proceeded to warn me twice, if he then proceeded to warn me three times, why was it not possible to think that he might warn me a fourth time? Two, what was Brenner warning me against? Was he saying that Israel would put me on trial? But they already have, half a dozen times. Was he saying something else? But surely Brenner would not do such a thing. We are both Jews, and we are friends. Last week, my brother, poor chap, he suffers merely on account of an accident of birth, he received yet another call from my friend Brenner. It was the fourth warning. He was bothered by the fact that I raise nasty questions such as the one of the time bomb in Israel that is represented by the existence there of half a million hostile Arabs and my proposal for the removal of those who are unwilling to acknowledge total Jewish sovereignty in the land. He is bothered by the fact that I say that when Torah law comes into conflict with the law of a Knesset or government decision, the Torah law takes precedence. Essentially, what bothers my friend Brenner is that I am not afraid of him. What bothers him is that I speak to the Jews of Israel and I remind them of the disastrous errors committed by the gentilized Israeli establishment over the years. And I won't read the whole article, but the rabbi mentions here all the bad deeds of the Israeli establishment, such as their opposition to emergency aliyah from Europe when Jabotinsky cried for it, the Altalenas episode, the destruction of the Yemenite and Sephardi children who came to Israel spiritually. And now I'm going to cut to the end. So after giving this list, he says like this, I don't know what my friend Brenner will do next. I do not know what his employers, the government of Israel, will tell him to do. I can only tell them all to stop wasting their time. And if they want to intimidate people, let them pick on their usual victims, the post-fartim, the new immigrants, the employees who need the jobs and are given them by the government. Dear Brenner, I can promise you one thing. I will never do anything that the Jewish halacha and destiny do not decree. And if you have time, Come over to see me, and I'll teach you how to be a good Jew instead of a poor imitation of James Bond. That's a classic piece by Rabbi Kahana called My Friend Brenner. And by the way, one month after this article was written, Rabbi Kahana was attacked by unknown assailants who beat him badly on a Jerusalem street. So nothing changes. It's just happening to more people now, and we have internet now, and it's more exposed. Okay, that's it for me. Stay tuned to next week's podcast, Bizrat Hashem. I'll be talking a little about Sukkot and Tzibchast Torah and other things that might pop into my head. And don't forget to tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. You could Google Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes and you'll probably find it. Only in the Bible can you learn Jewish history, Jewish ethics, and how normal Jews conducted themselves before the exile. See you next week in the soccer.